Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 60 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. So today's guest, I'm really excited to have on. She has a quite a unique story about how she got on the show. So a few weeks ago, I was talking with Gwen about potential guests and who she thought would be good for our show, and she suggested Victoria. So I sent Victoria an email just explaining a little bit about my show because I didn't know if she knew anything about it and the fact that Gwen had given me her contact information. And I just really want to read the response that she wrote back to that original email. Hi, Marcy, she wrote. First, I grieve with you. Having lost my daughter the same age as your Andy, I know your pain. I know your story a little bit as we are Facebook friends already. I added you a few months ago after listening to your podcast. I'm not sure where I heard of your story originally, but one day I was led to it. I remember thinking, I want to be interviewed one day by this mom. And I said a prayer and put it into God's hands. Now, here we are. So the answer is a definite yes. I look forward to talking with you more. So needless to say, I was very excited to interview Victoria, and I just knew that this would be a special interview just because of the, of the circumstances that put it together. So please enjoy Sydney's mom, Victoria. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to hearing your story. Thank you. So why don't you just start out by telling us about your daughter? I want to start just by prefacing it with something that will kind of tie it up at the end. And that is, um, I heard a speaker once talk about the meaning of life. And he said, one day on your memorial stone, there will be a dash and it'll be between the day that you were born and the day that you died. And that dash represents your life here on earth. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if we were to measure that dash in inches for most, uh, memorial stones, it would be around the same size, but you and I, Marcy, both know that the length of that that dash in reality in physical life can be much shorter. And um, I just want to say, I read your story too. And I, I just am so sorry. I can't imagine a sudden loss like you have gone through and um, your story has touched my heart. And I just wanted to start by saying that, um, that we're in this together. Yeah. (laughs) Sydney's story is a little bit different in that I feel like I grieved a normal life with her because hers wasn't a sudden loss. Right. Um, Although the prognosis wasn't death, I still feel like we grieved a normal life for her almost 15 years. So she was born with four tumors on her brain and spinal cord. Um, We found out when she was about eight months old. Up until then, there were a few things that were just abnormal. She wasn't, she was a little underdeveloped, underweight. Um, They were watching her, Mm -hmm. but it was, um, and she had some raspy breathing, but it was misdiagnosed as something respiratory. But what happened was we were at a routine pediatrician's visit and they measured the circumference of her head and it was proportionately a little bit bigger than her body. So they said, you know what, let's just go get an ultrasound. Let's check it out and see what's going on. And so they sent us over to the ultrasound at the hospital and went there. And then it was when the tech called the doctor in and they were looking at the, the film or the results of the test. 
and with their backs toward me and kind of whispering that I knew something wasn't right. Right. They turned around and they let me know that Sydney was hydrocephalic and you know, that means water on the brain. Mm -hmm. They didn't know the cause of it. And so they decided that we should probably go over to MRI to get a closer look, a deeper scan and see what they could find out. Now the neurosurgeon that was supposed to be reading that scan was not going to be around to read it for a couple of days. And so back in that day, it wasn't like instantly where you could find out results like it is now. So I had to wait for two days knowing that I had an eight month old little baby who had water on the brain, didn't know why. And so that was really, really tough. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of questioning got at that point. Why, you know, why is my baby having to go through all of this? But we did get the results and we found out that she had four tumors on her brain and spinal cord. Um, We didn't know at that time that they were non-cancerous. We found that out later. So that was good. Um, But she, but they were disabling and they put a lot of pressure on her brain and spinal cord. And in order to improve the quality of her life, they recommended surgery. Now there was four growths. Um, two were real small, one on the top of her brain, one at the end of her spinal cord, but there were two major growths right at the posterior fossa, like the brain stem, and they were putting a lot of pressure. So we did at eight month old, eight months old, have that surgery. It was 18 hours from the time they took her from me till the time I actually got to see her again. Wow. Um, and it was a scary, it was, yeah, it was a scary 18 hours because I was just a young mom and um, you know, there, there are risks with surgery. So there's that questioning if you're doing the right thing, but she, she came out of it, her little fingers and toes moved. And so, you know, it was a long process. Her scar was more than half of her body long, you know, because it was from top, top of her brain to the bottom of her spinal cord. So you can imagine little tiny body in that big, long scar. But, um, six months later though, we had, checkup MRIs and the growth had all come back, which really surprised the doctors Mm -hmm. because the biopsy showed they were mature fat cells and they're not supposed to multiply, but hers grew back. And so they were just not really sure why the neurosurgeon took her films to conferences where they, you know, compare films and get feedback from other neurosurgeons nationwide. And they really didn't have any answers. And so when I said, would you care if we got a second opinion. He said, not at all. So we started to see a doctor in Chicago out of Children's Memorial Hospital, a world-renowned neurosurgeon. And for the next um, several years, we went to Chicago for MRIs. And so we traveled a lot, but she had three more surgeries and the same thing kept happening where they, they would debulk the growth and then it would come back. And so finally on that last surgery, they they did a laminectomy. They closed it up differently, created a space so that it, if it grew, it could grow away from the spinal cord. And then what happened for the next several years was that it just kind of grew with her body. So it wasn't putting as much pressure on, but all of that time caused her body to like her muscles to trigger function differently. Like it would compensate for the other. And so she didn't learn how to do things in the right order. Okay. She, she fell down a lot. So she was in therapy pretty much all her life in and out of therapy because one, they wanted to just try to teach her muscles to go in the right order, to work in the right order. And then um, also because they wanted to always have her monitored. If she started to fall backwards at all, neurologically, they wanted to know. So we kind of, that was the life we lived in and out of hospitals. Um, but she, kind of created a new normal for herself. She just learned how to do things her Mm -hmm. own way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, of everybody in the family, she had the most reason to complain, but she actually complained the least of all of us. Yeah. She was just, she was just kind of an easygoing kid. And we just kind of decided that, okay, this is what we have. So we're going to make the best of it. And we just decided to, say this is our new normal and we embraced it 
for the most part. And um, we just found that it was filled with nudges from the Holy Spirit that pointed us to open doors of opportunity to just bless people with her story, to love on people, um, and to show them that you could still have a good life in the midst of the trials. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it was unfortunate circumstances, but you could still cope. You, and we had the promise of scripture in Romans 8, 28. Um, it says that we know in all things that God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we kind of just hung on to that. That had always been my favorite Bible verse. I find it much more difficult now. For it s- is. I mean, I clung to that even after my mother died. That's always been my verse until the day that Andy died. And now I struggle. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I struggle more with it now than I did then, Mm -hmm. because then it was a life where she was still with me, you know, Mm -hmm. but now that verse is harder. Mm -hmm. It really is. We, we clung to scripture a lot, actually. Um, I remember one time we were reading and we were reading and we came across John 9, 1 through 3. And it was the story about how the disciples were asking Jesus about the blind man. And he Mm -hmm. said, they said, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him or so the glory of God could be seen in him. And she grabbed onto that verse and that was kind of, she coined that as her verse. Okay, so all of this stuff is happening to me. I'm having to go through all of this, but God can still be seen through it. Mm -hmm. And it was just crazy because she was only maybe like six when we read that, six or seven. She just, at a really young age, she just embraced that God could still use her. And it's crazy to think, you know, somebody that young could have that perspective, but I think because sometimes when kids are disabled or they have to go through things, it just changes things. You know, yes. they don't have that normal life. I remember one time in kindergarten that she, there, we had VIP and it was like a big thing that everybody did. And all the parents would come in and read what the kids wrote on their board. Cause you know, you had to make a board and it, you were the VIP for the week. They asked you some of your favorites and that type of thing. And one of the things that she said it says, what do you like about yourself? And she wanted me to write, I like that I have tumors. And I said, why would you want to write that? You know? Mm. Yeah. And she said, well, I don't actually like that I have tumors, but I like when we're in the hospital, I can tell people about God because I have my tumors. So I know, I know. And so this is just, this is who, you know, this is who she was. She, um, she just, kind of grasped that there could be a purpose in some of this. And back then I didn't understand it for what it was, but I think now as I've moved along in my faith is that, you know, the Holy Spirit is, can speak to people at any age, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no junior Holy Spirit. And so I feel like now I understand that's kind of like, she had her own relation. Her, her very own relationship with God, you know, she could hear him and she knew he was her savior. It's funny. I talk, have talked to other people who've said, sometimes you wonder if the kids just listen better, right? They just listen and can hear the Holy Spirit easier than we can as adults. Yeah. You know, on the night that Andy died, I think I've shared this in the past. I'm not sure, but are the... Our pastor, our junior pastor, had to go get my daughter and tell my daughter that her brother had died. And so he had been on his way home and he had to call his wife and tell his wife that he was not going to be home because he was going to have to, you know, go pick up Catherine and bring her to the hospital and that Andy had died. And and Mm -hmm. actually, he just he just wrote it in a text. He didn't even call her. He wrote it down in a text. And she at the time was giving her son I think he was in the shower or in the bath or something I think in the shower and she read the text and was really you know very quickly overcome and so she left the bathroom just for a couple of minutes to compose herself but didn't say a word to her son and she walked back in the bathroom when was drying her off with a towel 
and he just spontaneously said, he's in heaven with his friends, mom. And she said, who, honey? Because she had said not even a word that anyone had died, that anything had happened. And he said, a boy, I don't know his name. So clearly, you know, we feel like the Holy Spirit told him to say that to her. And she told it to me months later, actually. She kept it. Um to herself for a little while and then shared that with me but it just goes to show I think that kids will listen uh, when others can't because he was very young I think like three years old and had never really even talked about heaven much I mean obviously he's the son of a pastor so he (laughs) would hear about heaven but it's not like he had had huge conversations about heaven and he did not know Andy well at all he would have just seen him passing in church so But it was a very, very powerful thing for me to hear, you know, just that reassurance that within minutes, something like that had happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've seen and heard of things happening Mm -hmm. like that. It's real. (laughs) It does. And that is such a touching part of your story. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. That perspective, it's like Jesus says, about the little children coming to him, you know, and those who have the mind like little children. And I, I feel like as adults, we get so busy with our lives that you're right. We, we just don't always hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sydney did have quite the perspective. I mean, she didn't always look at things like they were so bad, you know, um, Right. She'd gone through a lot, but this is what made me really understand that. Like there was one time we were doing devotions together. I think we were talking about, let's see, what was it? I think it was one of the scriptures that talks about perseverance and how perseverance produces character, character produces hope. Um, and then some of the questions with the little devotional prompted uh, or the questions that, that prompted discussion were, Um, you know, have you ever had anything bad that's happened in your life? Now, at this time, she had gone through all of her medicines. Um, She, we had lost her dad, her, um, her biological dad was killed in an industrial accident. And um, my mom died 20 days later, her favorite grandma. And so, you know, she'd gone through a lot. So the, the devotion we were doing prompted the question, you know, have you ever had anything bad happen in your life? And she kind of pondered for a minute. And then she said, well, there was that one time that my sisters almost dropped me out of the tree house. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that yeah. was it. Like she didn't bring up any of the other stuff. And it's just crazy how, you know, she just, and not that that, not that I, it wasn't like a Pollyanna type right. thing, you know, it was just her perspective. My foster son was the same thing. He was, we had him in a Bible study with us and it was, there was a question about, have you gone through any trials or something, something like that, something about overcoming trials maybe, or, and he just sat there and he could not come up with an answer. And then he said something about high school or something. And I was, I just looked at him and like, well, dude, how about your kidney transplant? I mean, (laughs) this is like, I don't understand how you could come up with nothing here. There's a lot that has happened in your life. And, but yet they just sometimes, I think you just don't see it. You just feel like, well, that's just the way life is. And it's not anything particularly, you know, amazing that I've been through or something. It's, Mm -hmm. it's just funny. I think kids' perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So fast forward to 2007, we, Sydney started having, so like I said, for a while, she, you know, had had most of the surgeries when she was younger. And then all these years went by just getting checkups, learning to do things differently, having that perspective. And then in 2007, while she was in seventh grade, she, she really started to deteriorate. She started falling down quite a bit more. 
she rapidly lost the uh, like the functioning of her body on the right side left was fine but her right side just she couldn't hold things and um pretty soon she almost she was falling down so much i i noticed she was like wall walking and furniture walking to hang on uh-huh. now we had we already had doctor's appointments scheduled, but I, I called and said, something's not right. We need to get her in and have, you know, we need to get this looked at by the time we got, so we made the appointment or up, we um, moved the appointment up, but by the time we went to the appointment, she was in a wheelchair. Mm. I had to go and get a wheelchair for her because that's how quickly she had deteriorated. And what the neurosurgeon told us was just based on her films, he couldn't really see why it was happening, but he speculated that scar tissue from all the prior surgeries when she was younger could be attached to the spinal cord and it could be causing problems that mm-hmm. for that reason. So we had some decisions to make. Um, we scheduled a surgery to have the spinal cord untethered to untether it. And it resulted in long hospital stays from the, from going to the hospital where she had the surgery. We went over to the rehab hospital and we basically lived there for months, um, trying to get her back to walking and standing. Mm -hmm. She would do it unstably in therapy, but you know, yeah, she just, she wasn't there. And then she had spinal fluid leaking. We had some complications. Uh, we had to go back to the other hospital. She had to be lay lay flat on her back for three weeks. So it was, it was a long haul, but still that perspective that she had, she kept that Uh and it continued and she continued to just inspire me and amaze me with the wisdom and some of the things that she would say. She came home for uh, maybe a month to six weeks, I think. And then we went back again and had a second surgery. So, and another long stay at the rehab hospital. She just wasn't improving. And she wanted to try to do everything she could to improve. She didn't want to accept that, you know, this was going to be her life. And she believed in a miracle and she prayed for it every day she prayed and believed that God would heal her. And, you know, there were times when I was so frustrated with God. Yeah. I was shaking my fists and crying out to him and saying, God, how can you not heal this girl? Right. I mean, she believes 100% you are going to heal her on this earth. She wants to, we, we plan to write a book about her story She wanted to tell everybody about his amazing healing, you know? And so that was supposed to be the answer, right? Yes. That was supposed to be the answer. That's what we believed, but that's not how it, how it ended. No. Um, so after the second surgery, more therapy, we were kind of at a place where we didn't know what we were going to do from there. Mm -hmm. And, um, she just started to deteriorate even more and started not feeling well. She would go to school normally, even if she didn't feel well, but she was even wanting to stay home from school. And she was saying things like, I'm just tired. I don't want to fight anymore. Mm -hmm. I feel like my purpose here is done. Things like this. You don't want to hear your kids say this, you know? I said, what do you mean? You know, what about your miracle? You know, and we're going to write the book together and tell, but she was just getting tired. Um, she was deteriorating and we did. So this was on a weekend and that she had said this like on a Saturday. And then we had a, an appointment already scheduled for Monday to go see the neurosurgeon again. And then on Sunday morning, Well, actually it was Friday night and Saturday night. She was just really restless, couldn't get comfortable. And her room was upstairs and mine was down, but I had a baby monitor. So, you know, she could call me in the night. And the first night, I think I was up and down the stairs, probably it was more than 10 times, just trying to help adjust her, turn her, get her comfortable so she could sleep. 
the following night I slept in her brother's room, which was right across the hall upstairs. So she, I was had easier access to her, but the following night she would, she didn't, she didn't rest at all. And then that morning I decided, I think I'm just going to take her in. Yeah. And she finally was resting and I went down, brought the monitor with me, was getting ready to go to take her to the hospital, went and checked on her. And I noticed the color was off. And then I was watching for her to breathe. And I noticed there was a long pause between breaths. Mm -hmm. So I called 911 and I got them there. And um, by the time they got there, they had a rough time getting her intubated. So they just kind of did the breathing thing to help keep her breathing. Mm-hmm. But by the time we got to the hospital, they told us that there was too much time in between breaths and that she had oxygen deprivation and that she, they kind of explained it that she, like she wouldn't wake up. Mm-hmm. And they kind of explained it that she was kind of between a deep sleep and a coma, not quite in a coma. Like they thought she could understand us, but she just couldn't respond. Mm -hmm. So she was on life support then for a little while. And we were getting tests done regularly. We, um, you know, they would give us reports that, okay, she's responding this way or that to, to this test. But they did tell us right when we got to the hospital that we need to start thinking about life support decisions. Yeah. And that was hard. That was really hard watching her. And the thing is, they would say, you know, if you can respond, squeeze my finger. And I would tell the doctor, she can't, she couldn't do that when she was awake. She can't squeeze your finger. Right. But I know she can, I know she can raise her eyebrows. So they would talk to her and I would talk to her and I would say, if you can hear me, raise your eyebrows. And she would. So we knew she could hear us, but she just couldn't respond back. And then there was one day that I walked out of the room um, to take a phone call or maybe it was to get coffee. I'm not really sure. And I came back and the nurse said, we think she had a seizure, which she had never had before. Mm -hmm. We think she had a seizure. um, So we just want to let you know, you know, this is what happened. And after that seizure, she never raised her eyebrows. So I knew I knew she wasn't there anymore. Like she didn't respond. She started drooling a lot more. There was just a lot of things that changed, even with her, you know, being on life support. They tried several times to take her off. You know what they do. They they do all the respiratory therapies and all of that, you know. But it was clearly that the machines were keeping her alive. And then and then she just really became more and more not herself. I could just tell, Mm -hmm. you know, and another thing, like whenever I cried, she cried, whenever she cried, I cried. So I knew that if I, if I was there with her, my head next to her head, which I did and cried and cried and cried. I knew if she was in there and she could hear me, she would at least cry, you know, and she didn't, there was just nothing. Right. And And there was a moment when I just realized I am not doing this for her. I'm keeping her here for me. Yeah. Because she She had felt like her purpose was done. Yeah. She knows Jesus. Like if she goes, she's going to see her savior face to face. And I feel like I'm just torturing her by keeping her here, you know? And so it was the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life. But, but we did make that decision Mm -hmm. to let her go. But before we did that, um, Gift of Life had contacted us. And so Gift of Life was there and they asked if we would be willing to do organ donation. Mm-hmm. Now, this wasn't something I had ever thought of before. To be honest with you, I didn't even have the heart on my own driver's license. I just hadn't really ever thought of it, you know. But when they asked us if we would be willing to do that, I knew that that's what she would want Yeah. without even asking her. I knew. And so we had, we had to wait, you know, um, before we could actually 
completely let her go until everything was lined up with all the participants on the other end. That was just a really hard couple of days because we knew we were holding onto her so that other people could get the gift of life. Yeah. It gave our family time to come and say their goodbyes, which was was a really special time, but it was also like so draining and I was just like, okay, I'm ready. This this is just too hard. Yeah. And kind of at that point when I got there was about when everybody was in place and ready to go, you know. Um at the all the different hospitals, you know, each waiting for different organs. Mm-hmm. So while we didn't get our miracle here, there were other people that got their miracles. Yeah. And I got in touch with, um, well, I've got letters actually from several of the people who received her organs, but I did get to meet one woman named Carol. And I actually have gotten to see her and spend time with her and talk to her on the phone. And she had Sydney's kidney. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was she's doing well well actually um she had been until last week and so it's just it's just interesting the timing of you asking me to do this because what it made me realize i heard that carol had had passed away um last week Mm -hmm. and i i just wanted to be there with the family i just like who knew you would grieve a kidney Mm -hmm. you know but I wanted to be there with the family to support them and they, and they welcomed me, but it was just so, it was hard because I knew every time they talked about Carol's body, that they also were talking about Sydney's kidney. You know, it was a part of her that was still here that now wasn't going to be. It's funny because her family, all there was three people in her family that came up to me and said, I bet this is really hard for you too. It's like you're grieving all over again. Mm-hmm. And it's not anything that I would have said to anybody. Yeah. It was what I was feeling inside. I would never said that because that wasn't the focus of that day. It was about Carol, you know? Right. But the fact that her family recognized that was so special to me. Mm-hmm. And afterwards I got to sit and spend time with her family and, um, It's just so like healing to know that in our loss, there still was so much life, you know? Yeah. And then there is, this is, this is really neat. Um, After we lost Sydney, it was just like the month later, we got a a letter from the Michigan Eye Bank. It's now called Eversight, but they were, um, we donated the cornea tissue. Mm -hmm. And that too. That's Yeah. Yeah, it's and and we were we were given a letter just around Thanksgiving time that said that, you know, because of the gift, there was a a young man who was blind that can now see. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping to meet him one day. I I've decided that I'm still writing the book. So I'm in the process right now Mm -hmm. of writing the book about her story. And so I'm hoping I can I can meet him one day because it goes so much with her verse, you know, about the blind man that she she loved. Um, But I think even before this happened with Carol, I, it's been 12 years. Mm -hmm. It's kind of that thing you said about being busy. Sometimes we get so busy. My life has slowed down now. I mean, after we lost Sydney, we had a daughter graduating from high school that year. We had um, selling a house. I mean, there were so many things going on, but also I was not in a, a very healthy environment. And I'm learning now that even though 12 years later, I don't know as if I really fully grieved back then how I should have. It was just kind of moving along. And I'm feeling, you know, 12 years later, I'm, I'm feeling it so much deeper now. Uh-huh. So when people say time heals, it does, but yet. Only if you let it, I think. Yeah. Only if you let I, it. I feel like grief to me is like the love you have for somebody that's gone. I have four other kids and now I'm married to a guy that has five. So altogether we have 10, you know, (laughs) 
Um, but it's like, you, you love your kids. And so just because she's in heaven doesn't mean I'll ever stop loving her, but because she's not here, I feel like that's what the grief is for me. It's like, I am embracing grief. I feel like there's a difference between managing grief and embracing grief. And I'm choosing to embrace grief because that's, that's the love I have for my daughter. That's not here with me. Mm -hmm. That is what grief is. It's, it's loving something that's lost. It's the love that really keeps us together. And so focusing on that is so key and so important. Um, Mm -hmm. Trying to focus on the love. I think it's easy to focus on the loss. Sometimes it's hard because it's, it's just, it's hard. It is. Yeah. This last year, like I said, I've just been going through so much and learning so much about grief. It was, we did a study at church on Job Mm -hmm. and through that study, I learned a lot and I learned about how Job didn't deserve a lot of the things that happened to him. Yeah. And that, you know, he didn't curse God and, um, And some might look at the, what happened in his life as a promotion because God chose him. And I, the study prompted us to take a look at our lives and, and say, you know, to be thankful for some of the pain and suffering that we've gone through because it's what makes us who we are later. So like who I am today is a result of some of the pain and suffering I've gone through in the past and what, how I've grown through it and how it's like, you know, the soul stretches because that pain and grief stretches your soul. But now because your soul is so stretched and open and big, now you have room for so much more of the good stuff, you know, and I got it. I'm going through the study and I'm like, I get it. However, I'm sorry, but I am never ever, ever going to be able to say that I am thankful that I lost my daughter. Yeah. No way. Yep. You no can't way. go that far. Uh-uh. No. And so that's kind of where I was. And I was telling my husband about this and he's like, I get it. And he said, but do you think she would ever want to come back? And I was like, no, not after she's seen Jesus face to face, been there, lived the glorious life she's living. No, she wouldn't want to come back. And then it, it just like hit me that God wants what's best for his children. And if I'm thinking of her where she is now is what's best for her. It's not best for me or anybody else here. And I will, I will never, ever, ever understand why it had to happen the way that it did this side of heaven. And I don't know if I'll ever be really a hundred percent a mom who wants what's best for my daughter, then I'm going to be thankful that she is where what's best for her. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. It's, it's a beautiful way to think. I wish I could, I wish I was there. It's hard. And I don't know as if I think that and believe that every single day. I don't, I just know that, I just know that God is good. I know that he understands because he lost his one and only son, gave him up for us so that we could have the life that we have, you know, the forgiveness of our sins. So I know that God understands where I'm coming from because he, he lost his son too. But yeah, some days I can embrace that. And then there's just other days I can't, you know, there's just other days. It's just not fair. It's like, why still, you know, when she believed you would heal her God, why didn't you, you know, I mean, Ultimately, she has been healed because she's there with him, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard. It is hard. It is hard. 
And so on those days when I question, I'm just like, okay, so now what do I do with this here? Right. Right. You know, now what do I do with this here? And I think, you know, there's that, what would Jesus do? And I think I should have a bracelet that says, what would Sydney do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because she had, you know, she taught me so much. She inspired me. I really believe that she left a legacy getting back to that, that dash, I didn't get her memorial stone made right away. I just what didn't know. I yeah. just wasn't, it was too hard. But when I did, so there's a little bit of a tattoo story. Sydney, wa- <laughs> Sydney wanted to get a tattoo of an ichthus, a Jesus fish. And um, she was going to get that on her, on her 15th birthday. Well, she died 11 days before her 15th birthday. So she didn't get to get that tattoo. But my daughters, my other daughters, her big sisters were like, we should still go get it. We should get it on her birthday. And mind you, I was never going to ever get a tattoo. I just wasn't something I was going to do. But we three decided, let's go do that. And and then some other people joined in. Other people wanted to do it. So there were several of us that went. We I contacted the the owner of the of the shop and he said, Well, I'm not open on Sundays. Her birthday was on a Sunday, her 15th birthday. Yeah. But I'll open up for you because your story has touched me. And so he opened up and we all went and got her tattoo on on the first birthday that I celebrated without her, which was eleven days later. And then she had this big plan. This was back when High School Musical 3 was was in. And she had this big plan. Let's have all my friends get together. So I put a Facebook post out and said, anybody that wants to go in memory of Sid, we're going to go see this movie together, you know. So we went and got our tattoos. And then a bunch of people met. But somebody said, you know, it's really sad that she didn't get to get her tattoo. And I said, let's give it to her. Let's have it be on her stone. Yeah. And, and it was, it was then that I thought about that first thing that I started our conversation with that, you know, that dash between the day you're born and the day you die represents your life. And, and so I put the ichthus as her dash. Yeah. Because in her short 15 years, I feel like that's what she represented. Um, a faith in her God, a faith in the now just embracing life as it was and focusing on what she could do and not what she couldn't. I mean, we tried to make things fun. She was such a jokester. She would play pranks and stuff on, on the, the therapists and everything. Um, <laughs> like when we left, when we left the rehab hospital one time, she was giving her, her goodbyes and she, the child life specialist and her the evening before she left went in and they TP'd like everybody's desks. <laughs> so when they came in in the morning, the desks were all TP'd, you know, yeah. and they kind of, they kind of knew she struck, you know, they just, they just knew her. She had a sense of humor. So she tried to still, you know, make the best of things. But I think she would be saying to me when I ask, you know, what do I, what do I do with everything now? I think she would be saying to me, you know, mom, what is your tattoo going to say? What is your dash going to say? Yeah. So I I am writing the book and um, hoping by next year it'll be out. It's been really tough because it's bringing, it's bringing me back there. Right. Back to that pain. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we were going to write it. And I knew after she died, I would still write it because there's things that she wrote. She wrote a really neat paper one time, and I'm going to include some of that in the book. And I mean, it was about her life. So it's still about her. So we're still writing it together. Yeah. But that is a beautiful thing when you can do something with them still. Mm -hmm. But I put it off for a really long time. And I think it was because I wasn't healthy enough. I wasn't I hadn't grieved like I should have enough and I was avoiding it because I knew if I went back and started writing, it was, I mean, I could tell the story on the surface, 
but to actually go back and feel the pain again, which is what I knew I would have to do in writing it. And so it's kind of crazy how 12 years later, I, I'm just kind of going through it all over again. I've been thinking a lot about that recently as well, just about the what to do now and how to live my life now and how, mm-hmm. you know, I, um, I obviously have been doing a fair amount of writing, certainly on the blog and just every week with the podcast and I started a book, which I have not written on for quite some time. But recently, our church asked for people to submit Advent devotionals, and they gave a bunch of verses, and people had to volunteer to do a verse. So the verse that I ended up selecting, I really, the verse that I felt like selected me was Second Peter three fourteen through 15. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace without spot or blemish and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Because Second Peter is talking all about salvation and the amazing, amazingness that is waiting for us in eternity. So I just thought about how I am here on earth waiting for those things. And certainly I think about heaven a lot more now mm-hmm. after Andy has been there. But God just doesn't want me to sit and wait. I have to keep working. I yeah. have to keep living. And I have to work to show God's glory here, even when all I want to do is just sit and wait and get to heaven. Yeah. But that's not my job and that's not my purpose. So I think that really ties in pretty well with how Sydney yeah. felt about her life and how you are working on your life. It's just thinking about how do we live that dash and how mm-hmm. do I live now after losing Andy? Yeah. So it's just something to think about every day. It's something for all of us as people to think about, but especially as grieving parents, because really your life does change. Your purpose does change. Your goals, your dreams, your hopes, it all kind of changes. Yeah. But where do we go now? And how do we move on? And how do we still try to live in hope? Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And I don't know how I would have done any of this without my God, my Savior. I just don't know. And so my heart goes out to people, especially of other grieving moms. God's just been working on me a lot or with me a lot on loving others. And this has made me more empathetic because, you know, I'm not proud to say this, but in the beginning I was having a really hard time relating to other grieving moms because I guess I didn't allow myself to really fully grieve. I, I was like, I don't understand some of this. Yeah. More recently, he's calling me to love like he loves and to feel like he feels for other people. And you know, just, this is just opening up so much for me to be able to understand more and have empathy with other moms. And I get it now. I went to a conference and, and, you know, I did this whole grief thing myself, never really got involved in any groups or anything like that in the beginning. I just kind of did it on my own. And I don't recommend that because, um, now I feel like I'm in a community. Now I feel like I'm really doing this the right way. You know, not that there is really a right way. It's different for everybody, but my reasoning for not doing it in a healthy way wasn't, it was because I was in an unhealthy environment, you know? And when I sat down at a conference, it was like, I looked around and I saw 60 other women sitting there And it was like, they have all been through what I went through. And my heart just broke. Yeah. 
in that moment for all those other moms. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to tell you, I am so thankful that you're doing what you do. I'm so thankful that you're writing and I'm so thankful that you're doing this podcast because we need this. (laughs) Yeah, we do need to be in community. And it's funny that I know your heart was breaking, but it also felt, I'm sure, as mine does, feels a a little more peace too, just knowing that you are not alone. So even though your heart is breaking for all these other women and my heart breaks for you and what you've gone through with Sydney, it also warms my heart and warms my spirit and makes me feel like we are in this together and we can get through it together. And there is strength when we are together. So our pain really does not being in with 60 other people, it's not like it's multiplied pain. It's that now you can share it. Like you can share your pain of losing Sydney with 59 other women. It's not that their pain is burdening you. It's that all of it can be shared together. And it's just Mm -hmm. easier to carry when you're with others for me. Yes. 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 And they understand, they get it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Victoria, for being on, for sharing Sydney with us, for sharing your story with us and for living a really great dash. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.